Um, hi, I'm Kotz. <laughs> I'll be giving the last part of the sermon series. We've been talking about this for the past four weeks. This is the fifth week, and this is the last part of the series. Um, we're talking about what constitutes the core, the DNA, the very central thing about church. And what we did for the last few weeks is we looked back to the birth of the church. Now, okay, let me um, tell you a little something about me. About 2006, 2007, I got into this weird hobby. You know, we all have like weird hobbies that we don't tell anybody else. Well, today I'm going to share with you one of my hobbies. Um, I was driving down the street. I was living in Northern California at the time. And I remember seeing a sign on a church that has like these, you know, like, I'm sure a dad did it because they're like dad jokes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, so I want to share a few of them. I started collecting. This is my hobby. I started collecting these pictures. Some of them I took myself. Some of them I found them online. So I want to share a few of them with you. This one, Easter is more than something to die for. Uh, 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 oh, no. Okay. Well, maybe try this one off for size. Seven days without prayer makes one week. You like that one? I'm sure it's like this dad that's like, oh, man, my family doesn't appreciate this, but I know everybody else will. Okay. The next one is interesting. The next one, it says, the sign maker is on vacation. Come inside for a message. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because usually the, anyways. And my personal favorite one I left for last, okay, okay, is what's missing from ch dash dash ch? Oh, you are. <laughs> I know. That's pretty creative, right? No? Okay. Now, when we think about church today, <laughs> no? Okay, was that a waste of time? Okay. Well, I'm a dad now, so I could appreciate these things. Okay. Well, anyways. Well, the thing about church is when we think about church today, we don't think about the church that it was like the image that that church has around itself that's wrapped around church right now. Um, I think sometimes we miss the mark. Uh, the reputation the church has today in our world doesn't really match up with the reputation it was intended to have. And so this is why we've been talking about this series about church essentials. What is the core of church? What makes a church a church? Right? So we've been camping out for the last few weeks on Acts 2.42, which is this. This is the birth of the first church. They devoted themselves. Devoted means, in, you know, I said this before, the word devoted, this verse is written in Greek, an uh, old version of Greek. And the word devoted there literally means to just make it into a habit, like do it over and over until it becomes part of your DNA. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, when we looked at this list over the past few weeks, we discovered that these words meant what it was supposed to mean, but over the years, our culture have given it different meanings. And so we were trying to get back to what it originally meant. And so we made a list right here. What's this, the church essentials? These are the four things, right? The apostles' teachings, fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. These are the four things that, that was just listed. In the last few weeks, we talked about how each one, we can maybe interpret it a little differently to make, so, help, so it helps us to understand what it originally meant, okay? So apostles' teaching. Apostles' teaching actually meant to learn the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They got together and they weren't just talking about hey, Jesus died and rose again. It's like, yeah, that's awesome. They weren't just talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They spent most of their time talking about what does that mean for me? Like, what does it demand of me? Should I start praying different prayers? Should I start looking, into the, look at, looking at the world with a different set of lenses? What does that mean? That's, that's what they did. That's the first thing we talked about in week one. Week two, we looked at the word fellowship, and the Greek word for that is koinonia, and you know, if you want to pretend like you're smart, you use Greek words around them saying, hey, I know Greek, koinonia. Koinonia, um, sharing, uh, we, we said that it, it, it's better translated as the word sharing because today we think of the word koinonia or fellowship as just hanging out. But that's not what it meant back then. Sharing, uh, koinonia, that actually meant if you have two of something and you're not using the other one, sell it, take that money, and help somebody that's in need. 
You're sharing your resources with each other. That's what fellowship meant back then. Today, we'd say like, oh yeah, I was fellowshipping at the coffee shop, drinking coffee with my friend. That's not what fellowship is. Fellowship was originally meant as a way of sharing our skills, our gifts, our belongings, so that there's nobody that's in need. That's what fellowship meant. The third thing on the list is breaking bread. And breaking bread is not communion, although it could be communion. Back in those days, eating was a very intimate form of, of relating with somebody. And these people who, saw, who called themselves Christians, well, at first they weren't called Christians. People called them Christians. Eventually they adopted that name. These people, they looked at these people who are not like them. Like people who, like if they were Jewish, they would look at the people who are not Jewish. People who are rich will look at the poor. And they committed themselves to having these re- intimate relationships with people who are not like them. So they're committed to relationships. That's the third thing on the list. Now, the book of, Luke is written, uh, book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. He wrote the book of Luke. This is his sequel, the book of Acts. And he, as he watches the, the birth of the church, he sees a lot of things happening, but he decides to write down these four things. The fourth thing on the list is prayer. Now, we talked about how in the original language, the word prayer is not just prayer. It's actually translated as the prayers. There's a definite article, and it's plural, meaning that it was a prescribed prayer. These aren't prayers that they just recited off, the, off their top of the head. It's not like freestyle. They actually looked at ancient prayers, and they prayed them and recited them together as a group. Because last week, we talked about how liturgical prayers, there's definitely a place for that because it teaches us and reminds us to pray the prayers that we're supposed to be praying. You know, right, for example, yesterday I was praying for the UCLA team, and maybe I could have been praying for something better, okay, but, you know, <laughs> right? But these people were basically saying, because, you know, when we pray to God, we're saying, God, these are my needs, this is what I need, please set me free from this, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, these are very, very important prayers. But when you pray liturgical prayers, we're asking God to teach us what to pray. And there's a way of God forming us to pray the prayers that he wants us to pray. There's something to be said about that. And that's, these are the four things that the first church devoted themselves to doing. Now, this series is five parts, and we only have four things to talk about. Because today we want to talk about <clears throat> what the role of this church plays. Like, how, how does this church relate to these four things? And I want to talk about that. But, <clears throat> but, and I want to do that more in a historical sense. I want to talk about... What is the purpose of the church? Because um, <clears throat> when we think about church, okay, when we think about the first church that was, that was created in, in Acts chapter 2, it isn't this thing where people got together and they're like, hey, we were following Jesus. Yeah, we were, and Jesus isn't here anymore. Yeah, what do we do about that? They got together and said, well, I don't know, we want to start a club and we'll call it the church. Like, that's not how the church started, okay? The first church <clears throat> didn't start on a whim. It was actually thousands of years in the making. It was actually responding to this problem that existed for a long time. Now, before we talk about that, because that's going to be the main point of today's message, I want to make one thing clear, because I've seen people make this mistake over and over and over, and sometimes we're in friendships over this, okay? Which is this, the first church is not the best church. I've heard a lot of people say, we need to get back to the Acts 242 church, guys. Come on, let's start doing this stuff again. Okay, now, the reason why this is, okay, so when I was living in Northern California, I got to know some Stanford students. And these Stanford students reading this verse, they said, <clears throat> hey, you know, let's, let's, let's all live together and share everything we have. And let me tell you, they broke up so fast. Like these friends, they were like buddies and all of a sudden they hated each other. Okay, so the reason why the first church is not the best church is because if you look at Acts chapter 2, the v- version of the church that you see in Acts chapter 2, if you compare it to the church in Acts chapter 3, it doesn't look the same. If you compare that church with the church in Acts chapter 5, it doesn't look the same. 
As a matter of fact, if you take the, the church in 242 and compare it to what some of the, the description of the church at the end of the book of Acts, <clears throat> it's like night and day. Why? Because there's the writer, Luke, he's trying to make a point here. The point isn't the first church is exactly the church we should be emulating. That's not what they're trying to say. What he's trying to say here is the church is not an organization. The church is, it's an organism. It's supposed to evolve. <clears throat> so if we're trying to mimic the first version of the church, then we're definitely not being contextual to our culture. We're not. We're, we're basically trying to, to follow an instruction manual that was meant for a specific culture. And, and you know, like, if you really want to do that, you know, a few chapters after this, this verse we just read right now, some people were killed. I mean, like, you really want to do that, right? I mean, but as needs started to arise, they, for example, one of the chapters in Acts, there's some group of widows, and people are like, who takes care of these widows? And they were like, let's make some decisions. And the church shifted a little bit so that they could take care of these widows. And they came up with another situation where they had to address. And so the church shifted again because that's what organisms do. We evolve according to the setting that we're in. And so the church is supposed to be an organism. We're supposed to evolve. And so we keep changing over the years. And sometimes we change for the worse. We know that in church history, when we look back, the church does some really bad things. But there are times when the church evolves towards the good, that it becomes a really good thing. And so what we want to do, what I want to make sure that we all understand is that the church that was planted in Acts 2, 42, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't created on a whim. That the birth of the church is very, very intentional. It was something that was in the works for thousands of years. And in order for us to understand what the purpose of this church is, because so far what we've been talking about for the past four weeks is we've been talking about what the first church looked like, what they devoted themselves to. But we haven't really talked about what the purpose of the church is. Why did God bring us a church? And why has it been around for 2,000 years? What role is the church supposed to play? And in all that, what role does this church play in, all, in that bigger picture? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the original problem. The original problem, meaning if the church is supposed to solve a problem, we need to know what the problem is in the first place, correct? So that's what we're going to do. Now, if you doze off because you're totally not into this church thing, the next slide I'm going to put on the screen is going to be the one thing I want you to remember because if you get this one thing, then you can probably figure out the rest of the whole thing, okay? Now, this is one, and, and it's not that amazing either. It's just like the simple truth, okay? <clears throat> Are you guys ready? Okay, the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, not Genesis chapter 3. Thank you. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> no, 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 okay. No, why do I say this? Some of us Christians, we live our lives as if Genesis chapter 3 is the first chapter of the Bible. You see, if you don't know the Bible, let me explain to you what happens in chapter 1 and what happens in chapter 3. In chapter 3, okay, chapter 1, God creates this good world. In chapter 3, that world starts to fall apart. Sin enters the world. Or if you come from more of a Southern Baptist type of mentality, it's a sin, you know, like, ah, then sin into the world, you know, that kind of sin, right? Like, it's supposed to, sin is such a small world, but it has such a big impact, so preachers try to make a big deal of the word sin, like sin, you know, that, that's what happened in chapter three. Now, if the Bible started in Genesis chapter three, then the answer to that problem would be somebody dying on the cross for the sins of the world. It should have ended with Jesus dying on the cross, but the Bible doesn't end with Jesus dying on the cross, because the Bible doesn't start in Genesis chapter 3. The, the story starts in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the place <clears throat> where paradise was created. So I'm going to unfold this for you guys so you understand what's going on. So let's start with Genesis chapter 1. Now let me, 
uh, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter because it's really long. So I'm just going to read the summary verse at the very end of that chapter. It goes like this. God saw all that he had made. So he made the trees, the, the waters, everything, right? And it was very good. That's the summary of Genesis chapter 1. God created so many things, right? People, all that kind of stuff. And he looked at everything and he says, you know what? This is very, very good. I approve. This is so good. I'm awesome at creating things, aren't I? You know, like he looked at the world and he approved his own work, right? He's like, this is great. Now, when we go to Genesis chapter 2, it's a retelling of the creation story, but this time, is Genesis chapter 1 is a way of looking at the world being created. Genesis chapter 2 is looking at the creation of the world through the perspective of people. So they focus on people. So we see the name of Adam and Eve in chapter 2. <clears throat> the, very <clears throat> the, the, the summary verse of chapter 2 is this. <clears throat> Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, in the Hebrew mentality... Being naked means to be vulnerable. That means you see what I look like, you, I see what you look like, we have no secrets, we're not hiding anything from each other, and I feel no shame. I accept you for who you are, you accept me for who I am. It's like this perfect understanding of humanity. Okay, so in chapter one, the world is very good. In chapter two, humanity is very good. Okay, so that's what we need to know. When he, the world is good and humanity is good, everything is good. Everything is where it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be, people relating to things in the way they're supposed to, okay? This perfect world, okay, in the Hebrew mindset, had, they had a word for it, and they had several words for it, like shalom and, and stuff like that. But one of the words that they used, and you'll see this all over, all over the Bible, is the word heaven. Heaven. Now, you're like, wait a minute, I thought heaven was that place we go to after we die. No, no. The original understanding of the word heaven is a world that's perfectly created and molded and operating in the way that god wants it to operate okay for example dogs shouldn't be barking in the middle of service that that's <laughs> off base from him no, i was kidding okay dogs you're welcome oh you left okay okay <laughs> to clarify my point a little better um i'm going to use a quote from dr timothy Mackey. this is what he says when we use the word heaven and earth we are talking about two different domains domains this is really interesting heaven is god's domain it is ruled by god in heaven God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. It is where God's will is always done. Okay, so you have to start thinking heaven in terms of wherever God's will is done in the way exactly that he wants it done, that's what heaven is. So when we die and we go to that place, and if that place is exactly how God wants it to be and God is present, that's called heaven. Okay, and then he continues this quote. He concludes like this. He says, the, Bible, the biblical authors call this domain by different names, including God's kingdom, paradise, eternal life, and of course, heaven so when you think about the garden of eden <clears throat> where everything was good which is all the world is good and all the people are good he looks at it and says this is exactly how i meant the world to look like this is how i ex expect how i expect humanity to behave this is heaven on earth okay so let's understand that first because we have to understand this in order to understand the role of the church in the future okay now Chapter 1, chapter 2 is a creation of paradise and God recognizing it to be perfect, okay? Now, then we move to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so let's take a look at 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you have a snake talking to you, that should be like warning sign number one, right? Well, it continues. 
<clears throat> the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree of, in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, which God really did say that, and you must not touch it, which God didn't say, but that's a Bible study you could do on your own. Okay, or you will die. Now, okay, so the serpent is trying to plant doubts into the mind of Eve here, okay? And then it says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so the serpent is trying to get the woman to redefine what good and evil is. Okay, like the standards of how to dif- discern what good and r- what is right and wrong, he's trying to mess with that part of Eve's outlook on, on the world. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, so now from one person, it's spreading to two people now. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were, again, the word naked. For the first time when they looked at each other and they saw each other as they were, they didn't see it as a good thing. All of a sudden now it says, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They saw the other person's complete package, you know, your personality, the way you look, everything, and they saw shame in it now. For the first time when they hid themselves with these fig leaves, for the first time in human history, we have something called secrets. For the first time we have something we call an authentic relationship where we're like, I want to put my best foot forward because I'm afraid to show the rest of me to you. So this relationship with humanity, people-to-people relationship, was fractured at that point. Now, this is important because this happened first, and then, verse 8, then, so this happened after the broken relationship between people, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So all of a sudden, first, we have humanity, their relationship breaking, and then after that, they, see, they hear God coming into the garden and they hide from God in the same way they hid from each other. So first, broken relationship amongst people, right? Broken relationship with people. And then the second problem that happens is there's a broken relationship with God. It's in that order. And this is why when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he answered by saying you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with everything that you are basically, right? And then he said, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself because those are the two main things that were broken in the, in the chapter 3 in the, of, of Genesis. That's, that's the problem. But God isn't just interested in solving that one problem. He's also interested, not just solving that problem, but also reclaiming the paradise that happened in chapter 1 and 2. You see, if the story starts in Genesis chapter 3, okay, if that's the deal, then Jesus saying on the cross saying, your sins are now forgiven, that would have ended the story. But the story doesn't end there because from then on, we're trying to reclaim this heaven on earth deal. Does that make sense, guys? Okay, so we keep on going with this. Dr. Timothy Mackey has something else to say. He says, the Bible opens with God's domain and humanity's domain completely overlapping. It was literally heaven on earth. God's domain flourishing on our uh, beloved ball of rock and water. In the Bible, this paradise is represented as the Garden of Eden. Okay, so he's saying, originally God's complete control uh, and his version of what's right and wrong and his version of what needs to happen in this world was happening here on earth. So if we were to ask like, if God were to say, hey, um, Adam, what, what are you going to do today? Well, I was thinking of walking, and I was like, stop, on the beach shore. It's like, yeah, how did you know? Because, you know, what I want is what you want. Like, we know, like, we complete your senses, man, right? Like, it's like, Eve, what are you going to do today? I don't know. I was going to go, pi- stop, 
pick some fruit? It's like, yeah! Like, how did you know? Because your wants and my wants are exactly the same. We see everything from each other's perspective. We see everything eye to eye. That's exactly what's happening here, okay? And then he continues his quote. He says this, but quickly we come to a rift. Humans rebelled, deciding uh, they wanted a domain where they could define good and evil on their own terms. So all of a sudden, they stopped seeing things the way that God saw things. Now, if you are a parent of a teen or were a parent of a teen, actually, this is a bad example because your teens are angels, but but we're talking about, you know, the, you know, other, right? Where as a parent, you know what's good for your kids. You know you want the best for them, right? And then all of a sudden they stand up and they tell you like, no, I don't want that version of, your, of my, you know, I want a different kind of life. And you're like, yeah, I've been there. I was, I was once a teenager myself and that path leads to somewhere bad. Uh, I don't think you should do it. It's like, no, I'm going to define what's good for me. And so that, that whole deal, right? The only difference here is sometimes parents don't know exactly what's right. God always knows what's right. So, so that's, that's the situation here. So what I'm going to show you is a little animation of what actually was taking place because to me, diagrams help. Okay, so here's um, heaven and earth, both in the same circle. This is how God created the world, right? He said, my control and my wants, my desires, my version of right and wrong is exactly the same as the people on earth, how they define all that stuff. So there's an overlap, okay? Now, what happened when sin entered the world was this. Next slide. That these two things were separated from each other. Okay, that there's God's domain of what I think needs to happen in this world, and there is humanity over here on earth, or, yeah, we'll count this side. Everything's reversed for me. Earth over here, people are saying, like, no, y- you, you have your own version of it, but I think I know what's best for me. So you have your own version, your own realm, your own domain. Okay, so it's a separation of the two. Now, if you're like me, when you saw this diagram, you're like, I know how to solve this problem. You just put the two together. Next slide. You just smash it back together like that. That's problem solved, right? No, it's not. You know why? Because God, his nature is love. When God forces himself upon you, it's no longer love. Even if it's the best thing for you, he will never force himself on you. So a group of people who are saying, we don't, we don't want anything to do with God, God's not going to force himself on himself. So, next slide. So we've got to sp- split the two again because that's, that's what's, what's going on here. Is God is like, I can't, it's, once it's separated, I can't force myself back on this world because I'm a God of love. And loving God, I, I don't do stuff like that. I can't go against my nature of love even though I know that's what's best for them. So what, what does God do? So he has a plan. Now, if you look over here, next slide. Um, if you look over here, you'll see that there's a slight overlap over here that's kind of a light blue color right there. Um, it turns out, even though there's a separation, God still had a foothold on, on the earth, meaning he, every once in a while, people were able to experience God's control on earth. I'll give you some examples. Like for... Um, um, Jacob, in the, in the book of Genesis, he's in the middle of a desert. He's in the middle of nowhere. And he goes to sleep, and he has this dream. He sees this dream of angels going up and down heaven and earth. And we call that uh, Jacob. We call that Jacob's ladder, you know, or whatever you want to call it, right? And then he wakes up, and this is what he says. Surely the Lord is here. And to commemorate that, he builds a little monument. Because every time he passes by, he wants to look at the monument and says, this is where that overlap happened. That was heaven on earth, right here. Now, there's a problem with that, though. The problem is the overlap happened right there and then at that spot, but then if you go the next day, that's not going to happen. Another example would be Moses. He's walking, uh, you know, walking around. He loses his sheep, and so he chases his sheep, and he sees this burning bush, and he walks in, and he hears the voice of God. He takes off his shoes because it's holy ground. He walks in, and he's like, wow, this is amazing. He's like, that, 
He just happened to walk across this overlap of heaven on earth where God's complete control is happening, right? But if you were to go there today, you probably won't see that happening because it just happens sporadically. So there's that overlap. Heaven on earth still happens every once in a while if you happen to stumble upon it. And so these people, they got together and said, well, God, we want to experience you all the time. Is there a more predictable way of experiencing your complete control here on earth? And God's like, well, actually there is. It's like, yeah, 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 there is, there is, yeah. Uh, what, what do we do? It's like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to create this little tent. We're going to call it the tabernacle. And whoever's inside that square, and we're gonna, I'm going to give you exact specification of how to build this thing, okay? Because, because whatever is in there can't be defiled because it has to be 100% the way I want it to be. So if the minute somebody walks in there with their own agenda, then that's no longer God's space. So they had all these rituals of making sure that when you enter into this holy space, you have to be clean, like you have no evil intentions or anything like that. And so, so the problem with that, okay, so it's good, like every time you want to experience God, you go to the tabernacle, but the problem is nobody felt like they were worthy enough to enter into that tabernacle. So next slide. So what they did was they created this square, this little tabernacle. That's like a little blip on this earth that doesn't have heaven on earth, right? But they were like, if I want to experience God, I could go to the tabernacle. And, and eventually this tent became a brick and mortar thing, and that's called the temple. So people will travel from afar to get to the temple, but they will never enter the temple. They will just hang out outside the temple. Like, this is as close as I feel like I get to the temple. Now, that is actually a, not a bad system, right? I mean, like, if you want to go want to visit God, if you want to experience heaven on earth, you know where to go. It's predictable. You could go whenever you feel like you want to go. But there's a problem with this. There is one problem with this. The people who are put in charge of taking care of the temple eventually became corrupt. Because supply and demand. People really wanted to experience God, and they're like, man, people are coming to my temple from all over the world, and they're bringing like, these gifts. <laughs> you know, like, if they had like, these curly mustaches, they were like, <laughs> they would, that evil villain thing, right? And so in Ezekiel chapter 10, one of the prophet books in the Old Testament, it says that God couldn't take it anymore, and he actually, his presence left the temple. And as far as I'm concerned, there's nowhere else in the Bible where God's presence came back. So this is interesting because we have these corrupt people running the temple and they're charging people to come and see the temple and stuff like that, right? But the temple's empty. There's no God in there, but they, they don't know that. They keep telling people that this is where God is. Now, that's how the Old Testament ends. People want to experience God, but they can't because God's not in the temple. So basically what happens is, next slide, it's gone. Heaven on earth is gone. There's still that overlap that you can experience every once in a while. It's still, you know, today, like, right? So God had a plan that he decided to execute right here that's been foretold for ages, which is God is going to send his own son. God himself is going to come to this earth, and he's going to walk into the earth from heaven. He's going to come into the earth. So next slide. So I, I designated him as like the cross. He came from heaven onto earth, right? And what he did for what we know is at least three years in the Bible, he, according to the Bible, he traveled around the region that he was in. And this is what happened. Next slide. Wherever he went, he would bring little pockets of heaven there, and it would pop up every once in a while, like, oh, like, Jesus is here, and all of a sudden, somebody's healed. Because whenever God's control is purely on, on a situation, right, there's no sickness there. So people will be healed. Or there's people who were cast out of society. Jesus would show up, heaven shows up there, and all of a sudden, they're restored. Like, whatever God wants the world to look like just happened to happen wherever Jesus went, so these pockets of heaven would pop up, and eventually the people who worked at the temple are like, this is a threat to us because it's bad for a business, right? Um, so uh, let's get rid of him. And so they got rid of Jesus. They silenced him. 
Now, this is where the book of Acts comes in. This is where the birth of the church comes in. You see those pockets of heaven right there that you see on that screen? There's, there's these pockets of people who've experienced Jesus, and they got together and said, I can see what God is trying to do here. This is thousands of years in the making, where God saw a problem, and he solved it on the cross when he died for our sins, right? But, but he wants to restore heaven on earth, and that's where we play. This is the part that we're supposed to play, guys. Come on. Okay, this is what we're going to do. And they got together, okay, and they started talking to other people about this good news, saying, guys, heaven is here. Heaven is near. It's happening right here in our midst. And it turns out, as Jesus was going around creating pockets of heaven, these people who were followers of Jesus, wherever they went, they started creating pockets of heaven. So next, next slide. So what happened was that these groups started expanding, 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 and they got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the earth became more and more of this overlap of heaven and earth once again. And that is the role that the church was playing. That is the purpose of the church. That's what they saw themselves as. That is exactly what they, they said. You know, this thing called the church that Jesus created on earth that we're supposed to execute, that is the purpose of what we're, this is the reason why we're here. Now, if you want to know how the story ends, at the end of the story, it's like in the book of Revelation, it tells the story of this, next slide, where heaven eventually overlaps with the earth again. Read the last two chapters of Revelation, it'll describe what that looks like in, in metaphors and symbols and stuff like that, right? So in other words, what I want everybody here to know is that because the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, not chapter 3, the sto- end of the story is not Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. The end of the story is a reunification of heaven and earth. This is why we pray. We pray to see more of heaven on earth. This is why we pray for healing. This is why we pray for reconciliation. This is why we pray for the people that are our enemies because we want God to have complete control over all our lives so that we become more and more the people that God called us to be. In other words, the Bible is a story of heaven and earth being reunited through Jesus. That's what the Bible, that's the entirety of the Bible right there. Okay, and I, I know some people, especially if you grew up in a more like a traditional kind of church, you're probably thinking like, well, wait, 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 wait. I thought, I thought the Bible was about how I could get saved so I don't go to hell. And, and, okay, let me, let me just tell you something here, okay? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. The Bible does talk about, like, after you die, you want to be in a better place, right, right? But that's not the main point of the story of the Bible. Now, if you make yourself the main character of the Bible, then, of course, that's the most important thing because you want to make sure you're taken care of. But when you look at the Bible and you realize that this is not a story about you, but this is a story about God and what God's trying to accomplish, what you discover is that the ultimate point is the reunification of heaven and earth so it overlaps again. And, and in a world where God has complete control, there's a verse in the Bible that says God desires all to be saved. So yes, salvation is a part of this thing, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is heaven and earth overlapping each other. And as a part of that, yes, you will get saved. As a part of that, yes, um, you will find restoration in your re- broken relationships. Yes, as, as a part of that, you know, um, you, you know, like all the good things you can think about, right? Now, so if that's the main point of the Bible, the whole point of the Bible is this re- reunification of heaven and earth, then the purpose of the church is this, is to partner with God to bring heaven on earth. That's the role of the church. The role of the church is to see heaven happen in pockets here and there because of the actions that we do through Jesus. So uh, uh, let me kind of rewind the clock from today. Um, in 2007, the fall of 2007, um, the pastors got together of this church and the board members got together and we prayed. 
and we fasted, and we waited to hear from God. And because it turns out, to have a good organization, although the church is an organism, we're also an organization, in order to have a good, thriving organization, you need to have this thing called a mission statement, and a vision statement, I guess, right? And so we got together and said, we need to have a good, memorable vision statement that encapsulates why we exist as a church. And so we got together, we prayed, and we fasted, and we did all these things, and we looked at the scriptures, and we looked at theology, and we looked at all these things, and we came up with these three words. And which is this. This is our vision statement. Experience heaven together. Experience heaven together. It's simple enough that we can remember it, right? And since then, everything we do is because of this. Everything we do. So for example, for the past few years, we've been partnering with Habitat for Humanity. Why? Because we think that building homes for the people who can't afford homes is a little bit of heaven here on earth. Or when we commit ourselves to breaking racial barriers, Why do we do that? Well, because we think that when God takes complete control over the world, when he says, this is what good looks like, we're pretty sure that there's no racism. And so as a church, as people who are extensions of the body of Christ, we think that we need to start acting that out today because we want to see heaven on earth. We want to experience heaven together. Or why do we pray? We pray because we think that every time we pray, we're trying, to, we're trying to bring heaven and earth over, you know, so if we're praying for healing, that's what we're trying to do. If we're praying for somebody to succeed, that's what we're trying to do. We're praying because we believe that heaven can actually happen here on earth. We can experience heaven together. That's why we pray. Why do we preach about generosity? Because we, don't, we think that when heaven and earth, when they overlap, that nobody's stingy, nobody's selfish, that we are actually freely giving in the same way that Jesus gave his life to us. That's why we preach generosity. Why do we forgive each other? Because we think that when, the, when heaven is on earth, we don't think there's going to be a lack of forgiveness, that we're going to have mercy and grace abound. That's what we think w- the world will look like. And that's why we do that, because we believe in experiencing heaven together. Why, do we, are, why are we demanded to love our enemies? Because in a perfect world, there are no enemies. Why do we give permission to each other to sharpen each other? Meaning, like, if you have an issue with me, I let you come to me and say, no, please speak truth into my life. And why do we say to our brothers and sisters at church, like, hey, I see this problem in your life. I think, I think you need to be careful what, what the decisions, decisions you're making right now. Why do we say that? Because we believe that when we sharpen each other, we're becoming more and more the people that God originally co- expected us to become. This is why we do everything we do in this church, because we believe that experiencing heaven together is the most important thing that a church can do. Yes, we would love to see people come to know Jesus because that's part of experiencing heaven together. But we don't just stop there. We also push for discipleship. We want people to become more and more the people that God wants us to be because we want to experience heaven together. And we don't just sit on our butts and listen to somebody talk from the front of this crowd. We don't do that. Uh, we, we do that, but we do more than that. We ask people to take action because just listening to sermons is not experiencing heaven. To- By the way, this is heaven, then, then the bar is set very low, right? <laughs> Unless you go out and actually practice it. Unless you go out and extend a hand, an arm, you know, a, a, your, your whole arm of peace, unless you do something like that, you're not bringing heaven on earth. So this is why we do what we do. And that's why we've been studying. Like, so, so we look at this and say, well, well, Kotz, how are we supposed to do that? Acts 2.42. This is how we do it. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We talk about the implications what does it mean that Jesus wants heaven on earth? What, is it, what does it imply? How should we change the way we live our lives? The apostles' teaching uh, to fellowship. What do we, why do we do fellowship? Because we believe that when heaven's on earth, we're not, being, we're not like, well, it sucks to be you. I have my stuff. You have your stuff. No, no, no. We say, 
look, I have an extra something. I want to help you out here because that's what heaven on earth looks like. Fellowship. Then we have breaking bread. We commit to having meals with people or having, sharing intimate moments with people whose society has created barriers for us. You know, like, so we're like, people who are not supposed to hang out together, we're going to hang out with them and we're going to become best friends. There's a mentor I have who, um, who, who, who tell, in seminary, I had a mentor who, who said like, he's like, you know who I meet with every week? I meet with this atheist who has the foulest mouth, right? Who disagrees on every political thing that I believe in, right? And every time we meet, he'll just say cussing, you know, like, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? He's like, things I can't say in seminary, you know? And then one day he passed away. And he was telling me in the class, he was saying, gosh, I really miss him. I really love that guy. We share the most intimate moments of our lives together. Sure, he might not believe in what I believe in, but man, we had a brotherhood. That's what that breaking of bread is all about right there. And to the prayers, meaning we're letting God transform us. We're letting God teach us what we should be praying for. That's, and by the way, there's a plethora of prayers that they probably recited back then together. You know, we mentioned a few. We, we said there's a few um, Psalms they probably preached, uh, they, they prayed together. They probably prayed the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. They probably prayed all that stuff. But I bet, I like to believe this to be true, I bet one of their favorite prayers that they recited together was the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I bet they pray that all the time. They want to experience heaven on earth. They want to experience heaven together. And the way they did it was through these four things. Well, what did that look like? It actually tells us a few verses later. Every day, they continue to meet together in temple courts. It's this big place where everybody gathered. So the hundreds of people, thousands of people got together, and they just got together, and they, they had fellowship. They shared with each other. They did all these things together. But that's not the extent of it. They broke bread in their homes. They had temple courts where they had the big gatherings, but they also had these private, intimate meetings in smaller settings in people's homes. Where, what did they do there? They broke bread. They had those intimate moments. Um, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? And that's what our church is about. Westlake Community Church is a church where we experience heaven together. And the way we do that is that we talk about the apostles' teachings. What are the implications of the Jesus, the Jesus movement? We talk about fellowship. Let's be generous with each other. We talk about breaking bread. Like, hey, let's try to break those barriers and create intimate relationships with people that we ought to be really creating with, uh, relationships with. And then we say these prayers and these worship. We do all these things. Why? Because we want God to transform us. And how do we do that? We do it in these big settings, which will be here. And then we also do it in small settings, which we call life groups. Because that is, we think, is the core of what it means to be a church. We don't have one verse that kind of says like, well, show me the verse where that, you know, it's like, no, it's in the entire Bible. We can't give you one verse, right? And that is what Westlight's about. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the birth of the church and how it could evolve over time. I'm here to say that Westlight Community Church, we are a church that, that continues to, to look at those four core elements. And we, we try to mimic this, the system that they used back then. We are an evolved version of that. We have different songs that they sing. You know, we have different preaching styles and we have different things that we do. We have different potlucks, by the way. Potlucks are awesome, right? right. But, what, but the whole purpose of a church is this, that we would have more of heaven invade more of earth and more of us. And that's the purpose of church. And that's how our church plays into this whole plan that God has for us.
Amen? I mean, why wouldn't we want to be a part of that, right? Let's pray. Let me, let me pray for all of us.